Glad to be with you again. And if you are watching online and you're a new, uh, a new face, we are glad to have you online. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm the interim pastor here. Uh, send me a message and I'd love to hear from you. So my wife and I have some really good friends in New York. Uh, we became friends with them when we lived there and they were the kind of friends who you eventually would say are family. Right? They're the kind of friends that when you don't get to go home for the holidays, you spend it with these friends. Uh, they're the kind of friends who every year we would go get Christmas trees together. And then with the Christmas trees still on the roofs of our car, we would go to our favorite Mexican restaurant and uh, eat too many tacos and just enjoy being in relationship with one another. Um, this particular couple just had a child, about two months old. And the beauty of this is it actually comes after years and years um, of struggling with, with infertility. Um, and so it's, it's really exciting. And to see the joy that they have with this baby is amazing. Well, we decided to help out with the meal train, with providing them a meal. Um, that's the beautiful thing of delivering food, is even though we live in Iowa and they're in Brooklyn, we can still provide them with a meal. So on Friday, my wife texts them in the morning, a group text with all of us. Hey, we're on the meal train for tonight. We're excited to bring you a meal. What would you like? And uh, the wife responds, what I would like is for you to meet us at our favorite Mexican restaurant without masks because COVID doesn't exist and for us to sip on margaritas and eat that yummy chocolate dessert. And of course, she was in part joking, but also serious. That's what she wanted. Uh, obviously, we couldn't do that. But for me, what happened when I read this text message was all of a sudden the loss of connection of relationship in this pandemic, it came to the surface again for me. And I feel like, you know, now that we've been so long in this thing, I've kind of gotten used to it and I don't feel the loss as much. Um, during the first few months, it was like, wow, this is really a bummer. But getting that text message, I felt it again. I felt the loss of relationship. I wished I could be back in New York. Uh, I wished that I could be with these friends. But then the reality came in that even if I was right down the street, I couldn't sit across from them in a restaurant because there's not indoor dining. I couldn't sit maskless because some of them are at risk. And my one and a half year old son couldn't play and snuggle with their new year, new two month old baby because of the risks as well. So all of this became real again to me. The reality that the relationships in our lives have been fractured by a virus, by something we cannot see. In this pandemic, especially for those who find themselves most at risk, the relational disconnection is nothing short of traumatic. So yes, technology can keep us connected on one level, but our bodies and our souls, we know that FaceTime, Skype, Zoom, whatever other technology you can use to see someone from afar, it's not the same, right? It's not the same as face-to-face -face 
interaction in person. We're not made for this kind of isolation. So we find ourselves in the second week of Advent. This Christian season of waiting in anticipation for the coming of Christ. And this year, I, I introduced our series last week. I'm, I'm seeking to show how the Advent story addresses four losses that we suffer as a result of the collective trauma of the pandemic. The loss of hope. The loss of connection. The loss of a sense of agency. And the loss of a sense of safety. Hope, love, joy, and peace. Now, to be honest, I was hesitant to talk about trauma at all. And I said this last week, I'm not a psychologist or a trauma specialist, but I was also hesitant to talk about this because the word can be honestly really divisive. I mean, there's probably some of you watching or in the room who really feel like we shouldn't be using that word trauma. I mean, that's only for extreme cases of suffering, things like rape or, or torture uh, what soldiers perhaps go through. And then others of you, I imagine, are on the opposite end. And, you know, you might use trauma to describe any time you're offended at all. You might even say, you know, on my favorite TV show, my favorite character just died off. It's traumatic. And on either extreme of this, it's problematic because on the one end, it's something that only other people deal with. Trauma has to do with those people who have endured great sufferings, not the things I'm going through. And then, again, on the other hand, it sort of becomes meaningless. Well, everything's a trauma, so what's it matter? So I, I almost didn't want to use this phrase, this wording, but I do think it's important, and I do think that it actually is the word that addresses what we're going through. Um, part of the clinical definition of a traumatic event is that it involves exposure to actual or perceived threatened death. Okay. This could be in your own life or in the life of someone you know, or it could even just be through the repeated details of somebody else's traumatic experience. So if you're watching the news it also has an effect. As the pandemic affects us all to one degree or another, so does the trauma of it. The relationships in our lives have been fractured by a virus, by something we cannot see. The professor of Counseling at Reformed Theological Seminary, Elizabeth Pennock, she says this, trauma severs connections. On a neurobiological level, experiences of intense fear result in a disconnection in the ways our nervous system processes and interprets experience, which causes an internal disintegration or fragmentation. This disintegration then plays out in the world around us as we struggle to be fully present with one another when our internal worlds have been fractured. So not only is social distancing a fragment to our relationships, right? This very real external uh, 
wedge in between our relationships. But then the internal effects of trauma make it hard to be fully present to others, even if we could physically be present to them. You follow what I'm saying? So it makes connection even harder. What's the first question that God asks of humanity? Go ahead and think back. What's the first question God asks? I'll give you a hint. It comes after they eat from the tree that he commanded them not to eat from. Does God ask, how could you do such a thing? Or what have you done? Or even why did you do that? No. Now the first question that God asks humanity is where are you? See, God's question isn't rooted in shame or condemnation or even correction. It's rooted in relationship and love. Where are you? The wedge of sin, it drives Adam and Eve apart. If you know this story, they're apart from one another. No longer are they able to be naked and unashamed. And yet they're also driven apart from God. They hide from him when they know what they've done. They hide. Somehow they know that their relationships have been fractured. The virus of sin is introduced into the story. One way to think about sin is an affront on the ability to truly be with someone else. To bring your whole self naked and unafraid into the presence, the, the withness of someone else becomes impossible. And this is especially true of being with God. It's hard to be with someone that you're afraid of. It's hard to be with someone that you've wronged. It's hard to truly be with someone that you've cheated or cheated on. Even if you can physically be in the same room or lying in the same bed as them, it's very hard to actually be with them if you've done such a thing. The divisiveness of fear, it makes real relationship, it makes communion impossible. And then Jesus' birth begins a reversal. So let's look at the story from our New Testament lesson from the perspective of Joseph. The way Matthew tells the story of Jesus' birth, Joseph is the main character that the angel comes to. Verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. So we as readers, we know right from the beginning how Mary is pregnant. It's by the Holy Spirit. But at this point, Joseph has no idea. It says she's pledged to be married, or some translations say betrothed, which is a great word. And then other translations say engaged, that, that this was an engagement, period. Um, now, the, the problem is that this notion, 
happening in this time is much different from our notion of engagement. Um, what was happening was a formal prenuptial contract entered into before witnesses, which gave the man in these times legal rights over the girl. And it was a girl, not a woman, which could only be broken by a formal process of divorce. So engagement was, there, there was witnesses, it was public. You couldn't just end it sort of without anyone knowing. But it was different from marriage. Uh, marriage would be a second public ceremony where the girl would move in with the man and they would consummate the marriage. So during this engagement period, they're not living together and they're not sleeping together. Um, but in terms of the contract, it's all written up. It's finalized already. So this is a big deal that she's found pregnant. Joseph couldn't just ask for the ring back and then go on his way. And, and we have really no idea what's going on in Joseph's head. The text doesn't give us any insight into his emotions. It doesn't tell us anything. We don't know if he's jealous. I mean, does he think, you know, does she love this other guy? We don't know if he's angry. How could she? Or who is this other guy? Did he wrong her? We don't know if he's heartbroken. We have no idea. All we know is that Joseph, Joseph has every reason to cut off connection from Mary. Their relationship has been fractured. Verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So Joseph responds to this terrible, embarrassing, even traumatic news with compassion. Now, we don't know his emotions, but we do know his character. The text says that he's a just man, otherwise translated as righteous. It means he's someone who, who sought to follow the Jewish law. Now, infidelity under Jewish and Roman law, it wasn't just grounds for divorce. It was grounds for public shaming. As a law-abiding man, Joseph would be expected to repudiate his errant fiance publicly in a trial for adultery. Not only would this shame her, but it would exonerate him. You see, this is why it had to be public. It would make sure that there weren't any rumors going around about this guy. Did you hear about this guy? He slept with his fiance, and then when she got pregnant, he just quietly divorced her. No, this had to be public, so people would know it wasn't his fault. To not divorce her publicly would be to risk his own reputation. It would be to risk people talking. It would be to risk never getting engaged again. Because what type of parent would say, sure, sure, let's let, let's, you know, give our daughter, our property over to this man who already got this other girl pregnant and then just left her. So this is a lot of risk to choose the private divorce that it says he has. He has compassion, though, and is unwilling to put Mary to shame. So he chooses the still law-abiding but more risky option of a private annulment of the contract. 
See, Joseph wants to do the right thing. He knows he has to divorce her, that their relationship has been fractured, but he wants it to be as painless as possible for her. He wants to deal with this sin as compassionately as the system will allow. The next verse says, as he's considering this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that, which is conceived in her is from the Holy spirit. Joseph, son of David, you who are in the lineage of the king who united Israel, of King David, the uniter, do not fear. I know you think the only faithful option is an end to your engagement, but I come to tell you, do not push Mary away, but draw her even closer. Take her as your wife. See, the reader knew that Mary was pregnant by the Holy Spirit all along. But Joseph just hears about it now by this angel. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Last week, we read about Zechariah and Elizabeth, an old married couple unable to conceive. An angel shows up to Zechariah, similar to the angel showing up to Joseph. The first words of almost every angel, by the way, do not be afraid. You see, the angel, both to Zechariah and to Joseph, knows that perfect love casts out fear. Do not be afraid, because what's about to be foretold is a promise of love. So in our story last week, Zechariah and Elizabeth are gifted this miracle, this miracle of a child in their old age who would be filled with the Holy Spirit, even in the womb, the text said. The hope of the Holy Spirit is birthed into the impossibly barren womb of Elizabeth. The Holy Spirit the third person of the Trinity is also the creative life-giving force in the world. In Genesis 1-2, we learn of the Spirit's role. We talked about this a few weeks back in creating cosmos from chaos. The text says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The word for the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is ruach, which also gets translated as breath or wind. So this is echoed again in Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made their starry host by the breath of his mouth, by the spirit. And again in Psalm 104, 30, when you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. Perhaps you've read Ezekiel, this Old Testament prophet, or maybe at least heard of this story from chapter 37. It's this famous prophecy where there's these dry bones, a field of dry bones. And in this dream of Ezekiel, they start to come to life, but it's only when they're filled with the breath of God 
the spirit of God that they are given life. And this is actually referencing the original creation of humanity where it's just dust. And then God breathes his spirit into Adam. So this promise given to Zechariah and Elizabeth of a child filled with the Holy Spirit, even in the womb is remarkable. It's unbelievable. And then we hear what the angel says to Joseph. Not that the child will be filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb, which is miraculous enough, but that the child is conceived by the Holy Spirit. If you think a child born in a barren womb is miraculous, imagine a child born without any sexual act at all. That's what the text is trying to get us to see. The angel is saying to Joseph, the same spirit that created the cosmos is now creating the Christ child. Something new on the same scale as the original creation is happening. And it's happening inside of your teenage fiance, Joseph. The text goes on to say in verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All right, a little bit of language stuff. In the original Greek, what it says here is Iesus, which the English spelling we get Jesus. And that itself is a translation of the Hebrew name Yeshua or Yeshua which in English in the Old Testament we read as Joshua. Yeshua means Yahweh's deliverance or, or God saves. God delivers. God will deliver. Joshua in the Old Testament, you may be familiar with, you may not. He was uh, Moses' attendant and then also Moses' successor. Joshua's name was actually given by Moses. Uh, his original name was Hoshea, which can be translated a desire for salvation. So even in Joshua's naming, you know, many, many years before the birth of Jesus the Christ, you have Hoshea, the desire for salvation, renamed Yeshua. The desire is fulfilled. A desire for salvation becomes God saves. The desire is fulfilled in a name change. And then at the end of Moses' life, he's up on a hill, okay, and it overlooks the promised land that he was told to bring the Israelites into. It overlooks it, uh, and the promised land is divided. So there's the wilderness, then there's this Jordan River, and then the promised land. He can see into it, but he doesn't get to go into it. He dies on the hill in sight of the promise. It's really a tragedy. But Joshua, Yeshua, is the one who leads the Israelites out of the wilderness into the promised land. God separates the Jordan, that which fragmented the wilderness from the promised land. He separates that, goes through it, and gets them to the promised land. The angel says to Joseph, name your son Joshua. 
In the Hebrew imagination, you got to understand, to name something was to confer a reality on it. God tasks humanity with their first, ask, uh, their first task of creativity. Adam, name the animals. Listen to this quote from Maria Popova, who's a, a critic of, of literature. She says, To name a thing is to acknowledge its existence as separate from everything else that has a name. To confer upon it the dignity of autonomy while at the same time affirming its belonging with the rest of the nameable world. To transform its strangeness into familiarity, which is the root of empathy. To name is to pay attention. To name is to love. She says, parents name their babies as a first non-biological marker of individuality amid the human lot. Lovers give each other private nicknames that sanctify their intimacy. It is only when we begin naming domesticated animals that they stopped being animals and became pets. And Susan Sontag, the philosopher and art critic, she wrote in her book, The Aesthetics of Silence, human beings are so fallen that they must start with the simplest linguistic act, the naming of things. Naming is an act of redemption and a special form, <clears throat> excuse me, of paying attention. <clears throat> In the Hebrew imagination, as I said, to name something was to confer a reality on it. Now, of course, they could still be wrong. You could name your son Joshua and he could become a a traitor to the nation of Israel, not bringing deliverance to God's people, but shame and suffering. I'm going to grab my water. Excuse me. So you could name him Joshua, but he might not actually act like a Joshua. He might be a traitor. He may bring suffering, not deliverance. This is why Matthew wants us to know that the angel tells Joseph what to name the child. Joseph doesn't choose this. This is coming from divine involvement in this birth. See, naming is an act of redemption and a special form of paying attention. Redemption. Name the child Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, the angel says. Yeah, the old Joshua, he crosses the divide of the Jordan River, bridging the division of wilderness and promised land. But the new Joshua crosses the divide of the sinfulness of humanity, the fractured relationships introduced by Adam and Eve, making communion with God possible. In the incarnation of Jesus, the divine human relationship can exist once more. In our Old Testament lesson, Isaiah prophesies the possibility of relationship. 
He says that the barriers, the fractures, the divides will no longer exist. Listen, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the desert for a highway for God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now back to Matthew verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The story here, like last week, it ends in waiting again. Joseph listens to the angel. He's obedient. And for him, like for many of us, to be obedient is to wait. He takes Mary as his bride and he waits. What's interesting is that the angel, if you look at what the angel commands of Joseph, the angel actually doesn't ask Joseph not to consummate the marriage until after Jesus is born. He just says, take her as your bride and name him Jesus. That's all the angel asks. But Joseph chooses to wait to sleep with Mary. Joseph chooses to wait. There's something important about his choice here. And I think it's because he knows. He knows what's at stake. He doesn't want anyone thinking this is his biological child. So he waits. Sustained by love, by the promise of a relational God, God with us. Advent invites us too to wait, to wait with hope in the seemingly impossible, yet not just with hope, but also with love. Love that says you are not waiting alone. Love, it sustains waiting because God is love. Listen to these powerful words about the withness of God from 1 John 4. These are verses 9 and 10 and 15 and 16. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, uh, the payment for reconciliation for our sins. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, hear these relational words. God abides in him and he is in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us, God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. This God who is love 
is Jesus. The love, 1 John tells us, is most clearly displayed on the cross. If you wonder what, what is love, it just sounds like some abstract, mushy feeling. It's pictured to us, shown in clear terms on the cross. On the cross, Christ is cut off, separated from his disciples and family. The shame that Joseph didn't want Mary to bear, well, it's poured on abundance on the shoulders of Jesus. Jesus is spread out that we might draw near. He's divided that we might be united. He suffocates against the hard wood of the cross and breathes his last breath that we might be filled with the breath of God. The cosmos creating Christ conceiving Holy Spirit of the Trinity. He experiences the fullness of death that we might have the fullness of life, abundant life, life that is pregnant, filled like Mary with Emmanuel, the witness of God. Waiting with anticipation, with any real sense of hope, is impossible without love, without relationship. So during this season of waiting, do you know that God is with you? Or do you think you're alone? Is God calling out to you in your hiding? Where are you? My son, my daughter, where are you? Are you hiding? You need not fear the God who comes to us in the vulnerability of an infant. You need not fear the God whose name is Jesus, the God who saves, not destroys his people. And while we might be hiding, God certainly is not. We know where God is. God is with us. Emmanuel. Amen.